Good morning. I know that Jason's watching, so I want to do one thing for him while he is watching. Jason mentioned to me that you preaching for me, Dad, is like a uh, presidential candidate picking a vice president. Whatever you do, do no harm. And I'm here to tell you I'm not here to do any harm. I want to, first of all, thank you and your elders for allowing me to be able to speak. I have to thank my elders. Glenn Alsup is one of them. Um, he allowed me to come up here, and I know that Glenn comes down here and visits quite a bit. In fact, some of us say that he's got dual membership. Uh, he loves it down here so much, but he loves being with his grandbabies. I love being with my grandbabies, so I, I get that uh, as well. So thanks, Jason. Thanks to the elders here. Thanks to my elders. And greetings from the Victor Valley Church of Christ. That's up in the high desert. You all know where the high desert is? Now, I'm from California. I'm from Northern California, but I like to say y'all like I'm from the South. So, so you'll just have to excuse me because my parents are from Galveston, Texas. His grandparents are from Galveston. So every once in a while I slip that in. But greetings from the Victor Valley Church of Christ. We're, uh, we're really excited to be up there. I was telling somebody in Victor Valley and Victorville, there's, it's either hot or it's really cold. And then when it's neither hot nor cold, it's exceptionally windy. And so any of the weather there is always extreme, but uh, we do uh, love it up there. But I got to tell you, down here, it's really, really nice. And uh, if Jason blows it sometime, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I do want to say uh, thank you for taking care of our son and Mary. We love them dearly. Of course, we love our grandchildren, Alayla and Izzy, who got to stay with us this weekend while Jason is celebrating. Oh, wait, I see one of my members, our deacon here, Gerald. I think Gerald and Nelda are here. Wave, Gerald. Okay. He's really, really tall and really, really big. So I make sure that whenever I see him, I greet him. <laughs> so they came down to check on me to make sure that I act right. Uh, so I'll do that. But greetings from... Uh, from Mary and Ron Hios. You all don't know who that is, but that's Mary's parents. It's their parents. And we're so appreciative of the fact that you all have taken them in and taken them under your wing and nurtured them and continue to watch them grow. We're, we're always so proud of our kids, just as I know many of you are, but we're exceptionally proud of them. Mary's going through the nursing program. Jason's been doing this for quite some time. It's very interesting when I think about them. Jason, uh, from a very, very early age, said that he was interested in preaching the gospel. When we were stationed in Fort uh, Knox, Kentucky, and by way of background, I was in the Army for approximately 33 years, and we retired about two years ago, and the church there in Victor Valley said, uh, not so fast. We'd like to see if you'd like to stay around for a little while. And I said, absolutely. And so we've been there for the last couple of, of years. But one of the things about Jason, when, when he was uh, at Fort Knox, Kentucky, Jason was about eight years old. Now you got to know about Jason. Jason has always been a really serious, serious fella. Uh, and so when he was about eight years old, right after the invitation there, 
He said, Dad, I want to get baptized. Then I looked at him like I did all the rest of the kids, said, don't bother me. And Jason was insistent. He said, I want to be baptized. And I was a little perplexed at the time. I was serving as a deacon there. And I said to his mother, the young man says he wants to get baptized. That's got to be crazy. He's just eight years old. And we talked about it for a while, and I said, you know, I don't really know what to do here. In my mind, you don't get baptized until you're at least 13. I mean, that's a rule. It says it somewhere in the Bible, I'm sure. I'm not. <laughs> and so uh, I remember going to one of the elders there. He reminds me of Clint. And I said, uh, Brother Elder, uh, my son, who is eight years old, said he wants to be baptized. He said, well, you know, maybe what you ought to do is you ought to give him over to us, and, and we'll talk to him. And we'll tell you what our thoughts are after that. And I remember that Jason went into the office of the elders, and we were sitting outside waiting, and they came out in about three seconds flat and said, you better get out of this boy's way. And so one of the elders took him down that evening, and they baptized him. And from that day on, Jason was always a student of the Bible. In fact, sometimes I would say, put that Bible away and go outside and play. But Jason was always a student. And then it dawned on us that this is just something he wanted to do. So we sent him to Greater Atlanta Christian School. And from Greater Atlanta Christian School, he went on to Harding, and he had a wonderful time in Harding. And I, then he joined the military, a man after my own heart. And one of these times he was stationed there at Fort Jackson. And I happened to be at Fort Jackson at the time. He said, Dad, I'm going to, at the, on the Sunday service, the person there has allowed me to get up and speak. And I'm thinking to myself, Jason doesn't know exactly what he's talking about because he can't speak uh, in a chapel. He's just a private it took me at least 20 years before I got to get up and say anything. Certainly, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I went down there, and it happened to be that there was a program there that had begun with a long time ago with one of the local churches of Christ there. And they, indeed, they had allowed him to speak. And so for the very first time, I was going to hear my son preach. And so I got up there, and like all dads do, I was nervous, thinking he's going to say the wrong thing, and I hope he doesn't tell him how I used to spank him with my belt because in these days that'll put you in jail. And, <laughs> and he got up there and, and he, he spoke and he finished and he gave an invitation and I was just happy that he got through it. But on that particular day, about 50 young men and women responded to his invitation. Folks, it was then and there that I knew I better not suffer that little child and get out of his way and let him do God's business. And so from that day forward, we just kind of watched him blossom. And I've made a point to not let him come to speak wherever I'm speaking. <laughs> because on every such occasion that that's happened, they said, Daryl, you are really good, but that son of yours, is he hireable? And so I always make it a point that Jason can come and visit one time, and that's it. And so he hasn't done that yet at Victorville, and I'm just waiting for a little while. We were a little worried, quite frankly, when Jason took the job here. We were with him when he took his first 
preaching job in Northern California, North Metro Church of Christ. And like many people who go to Christian colleges, Susan and I got married some 32 years ago, and I forgot to say at the beginning of this uh, discussion this morning that, and, and this is a hint for this is, I'm going to set you all up who are with your spouses, okay? I forgot to say this morning that I am married to the most beautiful woman on the face of this earth. That's going to get me some great points later on. But if you're sitting next to your spouse, you're supposed to be shaking your head and going, no, he's not. <laughs> and I got to tell you that it took some of you guys a long time to pick that up. <laughs> but we were a little concerned about uh, Jason taking on a job. He had just come out of a Christian college. Uh, uh, Susan and I were married at York Christian College. And there's something about going to a Christian college. It's almost perfect. It's wonderful. Around a whole bunch of Christians. Now, there's some bad folk in there, and maybe I got kicked out of your college, maybe, and got to go back the next year, maybe. It's a possibility. But the Christian college experience is a great, it's a wonderful experience. And when you come out of the Christian college experience, you really go into work, into the church work, thinking, wow. Church work is going to be exactly like the Christian college experience. And so Jason and Mary, anytime they took on their first, first church, they went in thinking, this is going to be just like it is at Harding University. And of course, uh, their mother, Susan and I, kind of shook our head and said, do we tell him now or do we tell him later? And so he kind of went through a baptism by fire in his first uh, church experience there. But I think it really hardened him. And there was a period of time when they decided that they needed to, to, to leave that particular work and come down to Southern California. He said, Dad, Southern California is calling me. And I said, Son, that's great, but is there a job for you down there? He said, No, but we're going to live off faith. And me and your mother are looking at each other going, No, they're going to live off our checkbook is what they're going to do. <laughs> And so they came down to Southern California, and, and Jason, being the kind of guy that he is, he turned nothing into something, and he was working there at Loyola. We couldn't believe that. And then we heard that he had been offered the job here at Mission Viejo, and we know all about Mission Viejo. You have had some giants among uh, preachers, and I said to Jason, this is, this is something that we really ought to carefully consider. And he did, and your elders talked with him, and I remember the day he called me and said, we're going to take the job. And boy, has it been a wonderful ride ever since. And so I want to say to you all, thank you very much for taking care of uh, Daryl and Shirley's son and Edith and Ron's uh, daughter. We really appreciate it. And most importantly, uh, our, grand, our grandchildren. All right. I think I've sufficiently embarrassed Jason. And I want to get on with our, our lesson this morning. And then I'll let you go. And then you can tell Jason all the bad things that I said about him off camera. So there was uh, Jesus on his uh, Last Supper. And uh, I'm reading from John, the 13th chapter, and we'll get right into the, uh, to the lesson. 
John chapter 13. Starting verse 18, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his eyes, his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whosoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one another, doubting of whom he spoke. And now there was one that was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it is that Jesus was talking about. And then lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto the Lord, Jesus, who is it? John was laying on Jesus' chest, and John is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Say amen this morning if you want to be one of the disciples that Jesus loved. Because I do. I would give anything for Jesus to look down and say to me and those who know me that there he is. There's Daryl. That's the disciple that I love. Or I'd love for him to look down on the Mission Viejo Church of Christ and say of all the churches that I, that I see and all the churches in the area, there's the church that I love. And so as I put together this thought, I wanted to look at John and I wanted to really understand why him? How did he get to be named as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And clearly he was because one of the things that Peter did, which I find so interesting, when Jesus put him in that tense position, can you imagine all sitting there? And Jesus said, one of y'all is going to betray me. It reminds me so much of growing up. I tell the story of the peach cobbler. My mother could make a mean peach cobbler. Mother would take that peach cobbler and she'd put it in the refrigerator so that it could cool off. There were six of us. And so the odds of someone getting caught tasting the peach cobbler before it's ready, six to one. Or so I thought. And I remember going into the refrigerator thinking to myself, somebody ought to taste that peach cobbler. Somebody ought to be in charge of quality control in this house on that peach cobbler. And at the particular time, I was looking around, and there was no one there, and so it was me. And I had just one scoop of peach cobbler. But folks, it really tasted good, so I had a second 
scoop of peach cobbler. And I closed the refrigerator door, but as I was walking back to my room, the peach cobbler really was lingering in my mouth. And I'm thinking, that was really good, peach cobbler. Maybe I ought to have just one more piece. And before I knew it, I had about three or four or five scoops of peach cobbler, and there was a hole in the peach cobbler pan. That afternoon, Dad came home. And you could hear Mother tattling on somebody. Dad called all six of us into the front room. And I imagine when the disciples were there on that last supper, it felt a little tense, kind of like this, when Dad said, somebody in this house has eaten the peach cobbler. And in the Darden household, we used to sit oldest to youngest. And my oldest brother immediately looks down the row. And my second oldest brother immediately looks down the row. And at the far end, my baby brother looks up the front row. And it was very quiet. My father was really good at this. We think he's a master psychologist and never told us. He said, we're going to sit here until somebody tells me who ate the peach cobbler. And we sat what seemed like six hours, which was probably only six seconds. Because rather than just let my brothers and sisters continue to glare at me. I said it was me. I did it. I ate the peach cobbler. And I remember right after that, my father beginning to laugh. And he went out and he laughed with my mother. And I heard him say, it works every time. The tenseness of that moment must have been palpable. And so what Peter did was, he said, let's get somebody to ask Jesus who it is. And just like it is in my family when my baby girl, I'm sorry, who's sitting here, would wake up in the early morning of Christmas Eve, and the kids would want to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning, before 6 or 7 in the morning, they would send somebody in to scout us out. And so they always pick the baby girl, right? Go in there and see if it's okay that we open up our presents. Because the baby girl is not going to get in trouble, right? The baby girl is the one whom daddy loves. And so they send her in. And in this particular case, Peter says, somebody needs to ask Jesus who he's talking about. Let's Ask John to do it. And the reason he was able to do that is because he recognized that John had a special relationship. We don't know exactly what that relationship was. Some say that because he may have been the cousin of Jesus, that that would be the reason that they were so close. But I think as we look quickly through 
the history of the apostles, and I think I've got this right. Am I doing it? Okay, I got it. Nope, not yet. Will you get me back to the first line? And I actually have one of these at, at my church. I just, uh, I think they probably just take it over from me because they know that I always mess it up. But there was something special about John. There was something special, and there's a couple of things that I just bring to your attention, that if you are like me, and you want to be in a very, very special relationship with Jesus Christ, here are some things that I think we can all look at together and maybe conclude that to get into that special, close relationship with Jesus Christ, we might want to emulate some of these traits. One of the things was that John was obviously very trustworthy, wasn't he? You remember that period when Jesus was on the cross and he looks down and he sees his mother. I can't even imagine, can you? He looks down and he sees his mother and his mother's weeping and the person that he entrusts with his mother and they tell me that they stayed in Jerusalem until Mary died, the person he entrusts with his mother was John. So one of the things that I take away is that for some reason, Jesus is looking for people that he can trust. And when he's looking for people that he can trust, he's looking for people that he can trust with his precious words. And looking for people who he can trust with the innocent people. Do you remember when he spoke to Peter and he said, do you love me? If you love me, what? Feed my sheep. And he asked him three times, do you love me? If you love me, then here's what I want you to do. I want to entrust you with my sheep. The dearest thing to me. And so Jesus, this morning, is looking for people who are trustworthy. And I always have to ask myself, would he have said to Daryl, Daryl, I want you to take the most prized possession that I have, and I want to entrust you with it. Would he say that to the Victor Valley Church of Christ? Would he say that to the Mission Viejo Church of Christ? Of all the churches that are out there, of all the churches in this particular area, I want to entrust you with the souls of the people who live in this neck of the woods. And clearly with your program is the Comfort Cafe, that's really powerful, folks. One of the things that Gerald does in our uh, church up in Victor Valley is he's responsible for setting up a program, and we're just starting a program to be able to feed those that are hungry in the community. You all have been doing that for quite some time. You've been taking care of God's people. I think Jesus would absolutely be proud of you and would say that you are definitely very trustworthy. He's looking for disciples who are discerning, who know when to talk and know when to maybe be quiet. Do you know Christians like that who just at the wrong time say the wrong thing? You know, sometimes silence is okay. The example of my father, he used silence to squeeze a confession out of me. 
You remember when Jesus was going up to the high mountain? And apparently he had his close three, right? His, his tight-knit group, Peter, James, and John, right? And he takes them up there, and they go and see the transfiguration. And Peter says, wow, look at this. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, I got a great idea. We're going to build a tabernacle for all three. He got it wrong. God said, not Elijah, not Moses, but this is my beloved son. In him, I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. They got it wrong. And when they came down from the mountain, Jesus says, make sure you keep this to yourself for now. The time is not right. This is an interesting thing to me. The question is, could I be that discerning? Would it have been Peter, James, John, and Daryl? Probably not, if you know me. In my family, we use the, the phrase, loose lips sink ships. I was never the one in my family who could keep a secret. So therefore, I think it would go something like this. Peter, James, and John, you come with me. Daryl, wait right here. Christians sometimes need to know just when to keep it quiet. Sometimes we get it wrong. And what I mean by that is, you know, we live in a world where all kinds of things are going on, aren't they? I mean, all kinds of things. I mean... You can do this, and it's legal now, when, you know, 10 years ago it wouldn't have been thought of. You can do all kinds of things in this world. And a lot of times what Christians will do very early on, now one of the things that I do is, uh, so, so I'm an attorney, mediator, and arbitrator is what I do. We have a business where we mediate and arbitrate matters between parties who are disputing and don't want to take it. Uh, uh, to court. And one of the things about going into court, a judge won't take your case unless it's justiciable. Nah, what does that mean? I'm not going to tell you. No. One of the things that makes a case ready to go to court is its ripeness, is what we call it. Ripeness. It means it's at a place where we really need to decide this. In other words, if something is about to happen in 10 years, it's not ripe for a decision. So we wait until it's ripe, and then we bring it before the court, and then we uh, use some judicial notice on it and decide how we're going to go. A lot of times, what Christians do it's because we're so, so dedicated to Scripture and so dedicated to the principles that Jesus laid out for us, we speak before we love. In other words, 
We're very quick to say that's wrong, thus saith the Lord. But we find out that that doesn't work if we haven't spent the requisite time learning somebody and learning to love them and developing a relationship with them. Doesn't medicine go down better when you know that somebody loves you? When you know that somebody cares for you? When you know that you have their best interests at heart, they have your best interests at heart, it's okay then all of a sudden to say, brother, you know that I love you. You know that I love you with the love of the Lord. And this hurts me just as much as it's probably going to hurt you, but you're living in sin, and I want to share that with you. Doesn't that go better after we've created a relationship that allows us to talk? rather than simply pointing out all the things that are wrong? It's easy to do that, isn't it? I, I can always listen to my mother. My mother can tell me the worst thing, Daryl, you were wrong when you did that. But you know why I can take that from my mother? Because I know one thing. There's nobody that loves me more than my mama. And when Christians recognize that the biggest responsibility we have is developing relationships and cultivating them, then we can begin to change a world, to change a nation, to change a city. And I just love so much this Comfort Cafe because I think that's what it says. It says, come here. Come let us share a meal together. Let's get to know one another. And let me show you how much the love of God can change your life. We need to be discerning. Jesus is looking for folks who are also active. The thing about John was, John was no pushover. You remember what his nickname was? Son of Thunder. Right? John was ready to pronounce a curse on people who were doing stuff. John was no pushover. Sometimes we think of John because he was laying on the bosom of Christ as being kind of this, you know, soft kind of guy. And, and I can get that because when I was in the military, I can't recall one time that I laid on my general's chest. <laughs> Indeed, when I was in the military, that would have gotten you kicked out of the army. But in this case, Jesus is looking for individuals like John. The scripture says here in Mark chapter 3, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that they might send them out to what? To preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Now somebody might say, Daryl, I can't heal sickness and I can't cast out demons, can you pray? Can you go to God in prayer? Do you believe that when you were immersed, you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm not talking about being able to put somebody's hands on them and watch them do the foaming at the mouth. That's not what I'm talking about. i got to be sure that I say that because somebody will say, Daryl said that if I just do this little convulsion dance, I'll be able to get this out of you. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying this, 
that Jesus has given you the power through his love to be able to pray, to be able to love, and to help people who are in need. Did you pray for any of the sick today? You did. And indeed, if I understand right, one of those that you were praying for is back here this morning. Amen? Jesus is looking for people who will take his gospel and share it and change people's lives. Those that are in despair. Do you believe this morning that if you're in a bad relationship, that the power of Jesus Christ and his word can help you with that? Do you believe this morning that if you're having trouble with addictions, that the power and the love of Jesus Christ and his word can pull you from that? Do you believe that if you have relationship issues at your job, that the love and the power of Jesus Christ can pull you away from that? If you believe that this morning, then Jesus is looking for you to not just have and hold this gospel. You know, I've been doing this Church of Christ thing for quite some time, not as long as some of y'all. So in our church, in our church building, we have the young people that all sit over here. It's the teenagers. And then in this section, we have what we call the uh, very mature Christians. And then this is just for anybody that wants to just be there, right? And so when I say I've been doing this for a long time, I would probably go over here and say, folks, I've been doing this for a long time, not as long as some of you in here is what I'm saying. But in the churches of Christ, we're real good at going over the scripture that we just went over last year and the scripture that we just went over last week and arguing and having the same discussion that we've been having, right? And then that's church, and then we go home. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Continuing to argue and discuss over the same scripture over and over and over again amongst ourselves is not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about going out there and releasing people by preaching to them the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And telling them that Jesus, the love of Jesus, being in a relationship with Jesus will free you from all of these things that go on in your life. Do you believe that this morning? I do. I believe that his love is so powerful, that his gospel is so rich, that when I share it, when I take it to somebody who's going through life's challenges, it makes it all okay. I notice that you've got a lot of young people in the audience. The young man, Jarek, what a great job he does leading singing. In fact, Jarek, if you want to leave Missionville anytime soon, we, we got Clint's looking at me and he's shaking his head. No, never mind. But one of the things that got Susan and I through as we were raising six kids and as everybody told us when they got their calculators out, Y'all, based on your salary in the military, even if you are a high-ranking officer or a low-ranking officer, you can't afford six kids. I've done the math, and it can't be done. And indeed, that's a true statement. I don't know how it was done. That's not true. I do. It was by the grace of God. It was keeping them in the church. It was being in service Every single Sunday, every time the doors opened, and whenever we faltered, and we did, we had some rough patches. There were times when literally the, the um, transmission fell off the car. It was rough, folks. 
But every time I was in need, every time we had a crisis and I was turning to the church, they were always there and they were there tenfold. You can never tell me that being in God's church doesn't help you when you're raising your family. And it always, it always has. I remember growing up in the Church of Christ in San Leandro, California. And a brother named Ernie Hardman, he was an engineer for NASA, took a liking to this little, little kid who was sitting in the pews. And, you know, after church, he would go up and grab the Lord's Supper stuff and start drinking them. And maybe one time he started throwing them. And, and maybe there's even a spot there today where he spilled some. But Ernie Hardman saw something in me, and he said, you know what? I want that young man to make it up to York Christian College. And at that time, my dad said, we can't afford that. There would be no way that he can even get a plane ticket to York College. And Ernie Hardman said, no, I don't want you to worry about that. Here's what I believe. I believe this is the best investment that I could ever make. I'm sending him up to York College. I'm paying his way. I'm paying his tuition. And I believe He's going to make something of himself. I, I don't know if he would agree with I, the fact that I did or not. But I know this. Going to York Christian College because of a gentleman, one of the elders there, Ernie Hardman, who's now nine, 90 years old, because he believed in the power of Christian education. It's the place where I, I married my wife. It's the place that really put me in touch with my Christianity, and it's the place where I made a vow that whatever I do, I'm never, ever leaving the Lord's church. So Ernie Hardman had it right. He was active. He didn't preach at me and say, Daryl, leave the juice glasses alone and stop running around the church building. Actually, he left that up to my mother. But he said, I'm going to invest in you and I'm going to double down on your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is looking for us to do today. To find those people, those diamonds in the rough. Identify them and say, you know what? With just a little amount of Jesus in your life, you will shine. And I believe he calls on us to do that. We've been appointed. We've been appointed to bring peace into people's lives. And finally, when we talk about love, when we talk about showing love and showing affection, I don't know about you, I, I sometimes find it difficult to do that. I, I'm the guy, when you try to give me a hug, I just kind of stand there like this, okay, all right. I made a point when my boys were growing up because my father is a manly man. He's a guy who, uh, when he was young, he went to Ethiopia and he was missionary there. And dad is just a manly kind of guy. If I were to go up to my dad and say, Dad, I want to give you on a kiss, a kiss on the cheek, dad might, he just might pull off his belt. <laughs> for exercise and for fun, dad would make us do push-ups. 
All right. That's kind of my dad. Loving guy. Guy who really taught me a lot and who I emulate. But one of the things is that uh, showing love is sometimes really, really difficult, isn't it? And maybe more for some guys than gals, I don't know. And then maybe more for some people who've been through some things in their lives. We have uh, two adopted children. Folks, I'm going to get in trouble for telling this story later on, so you guys may have to mediate or arbitrate. But we adopted our one of our children, and uh, when we adopted this particular child, and I'll leave this person nameless, he had been, she, it had been, <laughs> separated from its uh, birth parent for about 13 days. And when we took this particular child in, one of the things we noticed was very, very detached. Didn't want to be touched. Kind of wanted to be left alone. In fact, when he tried to rap, he just kind of went like this. And all through growing up, you could kind of see where just kind of didn't really like a whole lot of affection. I'm a firm believer now, and they have studies out that one of the most important things that happens to a young child, a, a newborn, is being wrapped in the arms of its parents, its mother. And I see some of the moms shaking their head, knowing exactly what I'm talking about. There's something about being close. There's something about being physically close with somebody that makes you know that it's going to be all right. Isn't that right? That lets you know everything is going to be okay. I'm reminded of that scene where the little child falls down, scratches his knee, just in a panic, runs to his mother. His mother says, hey, what happened? And as soon as the mother wraps her arms around the child, what does the child begin to do? Just sobs, just weeps. Why? Because I'm in a place that's safe now. I'm in a place where somebody loves me. I'm in a place where when I was hurting and I didn't want people to see me hurting, when I wanted to cry and I didn't want anybody to see me cry, when I was looking for compassion and I didn't want to reach out for anybody, I'm in a place now where I know it's okay. And that's what the church ought to be all about, amen? I want to be the disciple that Jesus loved. The wonderful thing is this. And Jason said, Dad, I don't want you to give the Church of Christ plan of salvation. Folks, here's the Church of Christ plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess. But I want to talk just a little bit about baptism because uh, if you're going to go to the Pepperdine lectures, you're going to see that we're going to talk about uh, enter the water, come to the table, come to the table, enter the water. And one of the things that we want to talk about is the beauty of baptism. The beauty. 
Because Galatians 3 and 27 says what? That when you're baptized, you have what? Put on Christ. You're as close as John was, and even closer. When you step into the watery grave of baptism, the Bible says that you put him on. You're not just laying on his chest. You're not just laying on his breast. You are in Christ Jesus. That's a celebration. That's cause for going around telling people baptism is more than just dunking yourself in the water. If you want to be the disciple who Jesus loved, if you want to find yourself in fellowship, in close comfort with Jesus Christ, put him on in baptism. And for those of us who've done that, doesn't it feel good? He's always there. He's always got his arms wrapped around you. This morning, I encourage you, I plead you, be the disciple. Be the disciples. Be the church that Jesus loved. If there's any need that you have this morning, we ask you to come forward now. While together we stand and sing, we invite you to come. When we walk with you.